Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to the FIC Focus podcast. This is a Macro Matters edition. I'm Ira Jersey, the chief interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of talking directly about markets, I'm going to be talking about how we analyze markets and how we analyze uh, the Federal Reserve. And uh, here at Bloomberg Intelligence, we have a very highly skilled group of data scientists that work with us. Um, and I have two of them with me today on uh, the FIC Focus podcast. I have Vera Tian and Alex Montiel. Um, they both work with our fixed income strategy group, making different models and working through um, the various projects that we ask them to do that. that so, so it allows our strategy team, like myself and and Will Hoffman, who we'll have on later in, in a new segment that we'll have on the show, um, talk about uh, stick with markets and what's going on in the flow, whereas the longer term products that are very data intensive and very technical can be worked on by our data science team. So, Vera, let, let me start with you. So what's your background? What brought you into the data science team at Bloomberg? Sure. Hi. Hi, Aaron. So this is uh, Vera. I'm a data scientist on the team. Um, so a little bit of background about me. So uh, my background is in statistics. I, I studied statistics and mathematics in graduate school. So uh, right after graduate school, I've been doing working as a data scientist for six years or so. Uh, so working with investment team at an insurance company. So I developed um, some interest in the financial market and decided to move to Bloomberg and uh, work as a, a data scientist working full time. With the with the fig team, Alex. Same question to you. You know, what what was your path to get become a data scientist uh, in our group? Yeah. Hi. Uh, first of all, thank you for having us, Ira. Um, I actually started my career in macroeconomics. I was a research assistant for a couple of years out of college. Um, I considered going the PhD route in economics, but realized that I preferred the quantitative work more than anything else. So I pursued my master's degree in applied math. After which I started um, working as a data scientist, working in the world of media and, uh, media and entertainment. So consulting for TV networks about what content to put on them, on their streaming services. Um, but I, when I was in grad school, I was able to take some classes like options pricing and quantitative risk management, which I love. So I, I always had an interest in finance and with my background in macro, um, you know, when the opportunity to work with you guys on the FIC team at Bloomberg opened up, I jumped right on it. Great. Well, so Vera, let, let me go back to you. So one of the models that um, you implemented for us and that we use pretty regularly is a um, is a model for uh, the different components of what might make up and, and what might move a, uh, a zero coupon CPI swap. So these are instruments that uh, market participants use to basically hedge um, hedge inflation and inflation outlook. So if inflation, they, people think inflation is going to be, say, at 4% and an inflation swap trading at 3%, you could buy that instrument. And uh, if inflation, in fact, is 4%, you'd wind up making some money. So, you know, talk to me a little bit about the development of that model, because it wasn't something that we had built in advance. So one of the things that that both of you have done for us is um, implemented some things that, that I had built, you know, over the years as an econometrician in Excel, and you guys have now 
now you know put some of those and and into a more robust data platform than just using Excel. But but this was a new project and and something that we hadn't had before. So t talk to us about the process of kind of going from concept to actual model. Yeah, sure, Ira. So uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, the two-year CPI uh, swap model I built for the team. So uh, starting out, we have a handful of variables to look at to trying to decide what are the most statistically significant variables we would like to use as independent variables to model the two-year CPI swap. Uh, so basically, uh, the first the first step is I start out with a variable selection process. Um, uh, looked at uh, the sum of the method I used is the stepwise variable selection and also looked at the, the cross correlation and tried to identify what is the lag of the independent variable is the most significant uh, correlated with the dependent variable in, in our model, which is the two year CPI swap. So after a couple of different uh, steps, iteratively uh, filtering out and uh, trying to find a final subset of independent variables that are most significant. So we arrived at um, uh, an ordinary least square regression model. So the four independent variables that are most significant we looked at are the ISM, the Manufacturing Prices Index, and the one-year percentage change of the Bloomberg Industrial Metals Sub-Index, and a three-month change of the log of the gasoline futures. And the last one is the one-year change in the Atlantic Fed's service sector wage growth indicator. So using these four independent variables, our model's R-square is about 80%. And uh, also we check the correlation matrix to make sure all the independent variables not highly correlated, so we don't have the, as much of a multicollinearity issue. Um, so basically, so this model, with the model, we'd be able to look at the contribution plot. So that gave us an idea of, of which driver or the factor is uh, is driving the two-year inflation swap. And uh, it also would be able to extract the fair value model, the fair value from the model to give us an idea to see uh, if the current, uh, if the current two-year CPI inflation swap is either higher or lower or it's more expensive or cheaper than our fair value model. So, so that is the basic process. I developed the model of the yeah, two-year CPI swap. So, and what I like about the model is that because it is just an ordinary least squares model and it, it doesn't use a more complicated statistical, te statistical technique, it's relatively easy to replicate, right? So, if, uh, if one of Definitely. our customers wanted to replicate this on their own and use Python or R or even do it in Excel, they, they potentially could. And and I, I think that that's reasonably important. You know, we can't do that with every model, right? Because right. sometimes things are incredibly, uh, you know, detailed or, or or need other statistical methods in order to get a, a good fit and, and for it to make sense. But I think in this particular case, you did a great job keeping things simple, also getting down to a very limited number of variables. And it does a, a reasonably good job in determining, you know, hey, you know, the market is rich or cheap to these other the variables. Of course, because some of the data is, is monthly, you can't use it as a trading model, but you can use it certainly more as an investment model. And uh, if you have a longer term, you know, view and you're looking out, you know, three to six months, for example, it would do um, you know, probably it does a reasonably good job for that. So, so Alex, let me let me turn to you and talk to you about something that is much more complicated. Um, not 
necessarily because um, you're you're a better data scientist or something than Vera, but but the project that that I asked you to work on and that you both researched and then developed and and we've now iterated at least one time over the over the past uh, year or so um, is a natural language processing model looking at Federal Reserve um, out of speeches and output, so things like the minutes of the uh, of the Federal Reserve meetings, and then determining whether or not they're hawkish or dovish, uh, both relative to prior meetings, but also just just outright. So, so, you know, talk a little bit about when I came up with this idea and, and we first talked about it, we were like, okay, there's got to be a way to do this. We don't want to just do word counts because that w might give a, uh, a wrong impression because, you know, j just a word count in and of itself doesn't give you context as to whether or not, you know, if you just look for inflation, is it inflation going up or inflation going down, right? <laughs> do we care about it? So, so talk about the iterative process that you used, Alex, for determining our Federal Reserve sentiment indices and that, that we've created. Yeah, sure. Um, I think one thing that's been very difficult about this project is that um, sort of as you alluded to, there's no clear cut framework for analyzing sentiment around monetary policy. So in the data science world, um, sentiment analysis usually goes along the ranges of just simply positive versus negative sentiment. Um, and when it comes to something like monetary policy, well, I mean, a hawkish sentiment can be both positive or negative. I mean, it's, if it's, pos it's positive if, if they're, you know, pleased about, um, you know, the, the rate of economic growth and they're ready to raise interest rates off from the zero lower bound. But it's negative if they're, you know, concerned about inflation um, being upside inflation um, and need to, you know, fight that. So it was uh, very difficult to find a way to build a model that can um, basically get at those more complex sentiments. So we started out by attempting to apply some more, um, more basic data science uh, sentiment techniques. There's two techniques that um, people used to use, not as much anymore, but one of which is a dictionary-based approach which uh, people compile dictionaries um, from you know, financial statements and uh, other documents like that. And you use the, the words from those dictionaries, basically as you alluded to in a word count to try to find um, you know, uh, which words are most important in the document. There's another approach, uh, which is like a linear based model. So you look at all the words that are contained in a corpus of documents and you basically build a regularized regression to add weights to the keywords. Um, we originally had tried to combine those two approaches to sort of uh, make up for the shortcomings of each one. And it worked pretty well for a while, but as we started to move into this hawkish um, regime uh, of, in, of monetary policy, we realized it wasn't sensitive enough to those upside um, uh, inflation risks, uh, risk sentiments. Yeah, just because those happened. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about let's talk a little bit about that. And you know, I think in particular, what what we determined and what you brought up, and as we were looking at this data, was that you know we we only had really good data for the minutes because we needed a consistent data set in order to construct the initial model. Only went back to 1993, and yes, you had some modest inflationary impulses in there that caused the Federal Reserve to be hawkish and and increase interest rates, but you didn't have the massive inflation of the 1970s embedded into the model. So we needed to find another way 
given we couldn't go back to the 1970s and 60s in order to better specify the existing model, you then had to come up with a different approach. And, and so, so that took even more research. So in a way, this was very much an academic project in, in some ways. Correct. Yeah, there was uh, a lot of uh, reading literature, a lot of papers being read, uh, a lot of lit reviews going on. Um, so we did sort of have to go back to the drawing board to figure out a, a way to uh, try to capture these more complex sentiments. And it actually just started out as an experiment that I, I was doing in kind of my free time to figure out if uh, this new approach that we are using now would work. And it did work. Um, so what that approach is, is we use something called a large language model which is just a massive, massive neural network developed by institutions like Google um, to perform tasks such as you know, autocomplete on your phone. Um, and basically they build these models that understand English very, very well. Um, I mean, everyone is probably impressed by autocomplete on their, on their phone. Um, and we take that model that they've built uh, that has all these parameters already built in to understand you know, the ins and outs of the English language and understand complex things like negation um, and we add a layer onto the end of that model and train that layer to understand sentiment around um, basically fed communications. So what we did is we manually labeled thousands of uh, sentences from the fed minutes and told the model, okay, these sentences related to upside uh, concern about upside inflation are supposed to be hawkish. These sentiments concerned about downside growth are dovish. These uh, sentiments, um, you know, related to lack of concern about downside growth. They're not quite hawkish, but they, you know, they're moderately hawkish. So we labeled, uh, you know, as I said, thousands of sentences uh, with those um, classes and trained the model, uh, this giant neural network to understand um, Fed communications, whether or not, whether they were dovish or hawkish. And it was, as I said, it was just an experiment at first to see if it could do it. And I was blown away by how well this model could actually learn something as complicated as, you know, sentiment around monetary policy. Yeah. And, and you know, obviously yesterday, as we record today on, on Thursday, January 5th, on the 4th, the minutes came out and we updated the model. You updated the model. Um, and, you know, we've we then put it out. And, and one of the interesting facets that you can use these models for is on first read it seemed like the minutes were reasonably balanced but then when you applied your you know statistical approach it turned out that actually uh the minutes were somewhat more hawkish than um that than like your first read would uh what would have potentially uh, brought you to because they did say there were two-sided risks etc and that was like the highlight that a lot of people talked about but but you know it, using your model what uh what came out of it was that actually there were significant less dovish statements which pushed up the sentiment score up to uh, toward toward more hawkish levels not necessarily because there were more hawkish comments but because there were less dovish ones and I think that that was an interesting fact um, that, uh, that that came out of the um, model analysis so Vera go going back to you let's talk a little bit about options markets um, so you you've been working with uh, Tanvir Sandhu who is our derivative strategist covering not only rates but also FX and equity um, uh, derivatives and in, in particular non-linear stuff so so options talk a little bit about some of the other data science work that you're doing for for him in, in the options space 
Um, sure, Iron. So yeah, so I spent some also spent some time with our uh, with Tanvir, our chief derivative uh, strategist, on some option markets analysis, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, so I think one of the one of the interesting um, projects I worked on is to calculate uh, gamut exposure for the different indices. For example, if we look at uh, the SPX index, so I'd be able to pull all the uh, active uh, active active listed options and be able to calculate the gamut exposure for the whole index. So in this way, we'd be able to get an idea to see if the current price is in a negative gamma zone or in a positive gamma zone. So we'd expect the, the market to be more volatile if the, if the price is in a neg negative gamma zone and uh, the market tends to be more stable if, it's, uh, if the current price level falls into the positive gamma zone. Uh, so we're operating on under the assumption the dealers are uh, short the puts and long the calls to be able to generate this gamma charge for all the different indices. So I find that's an interesting project. And another one I worked on find is quite interesting is for us to calculate the risk neutral distribution for the option markets. Uh, for example, also uh, use uh, SPX index as uh, as a so I'd be able to, for example, we're interested to look at if we set, set the tenor as a three months out, so we can select the different tenors uh, out on different horizons. So if we specify it as a three months out, so we want to get an idea, what about the uh, what about the distribution we'd be able to get from the current options market about the distribution of the price level three months out. So in this way, uh, after I derive the risk neutral distribution uh, from the current option price, I'd be able to calculate the skewness of this distribution. So that sort of give us an idea, an indicator uh, with where the market sentiment is at. So if the if the skew, if it's very negative or is very positive. So it give us, also give us um, an idea about the, the risk sentiment reflected from the options market. So I find those two projects kind of interesting. It's a bit of, uh, I didn't have a lot of experience in the mar options market. So I've, I've learned quite a bit after I joined the team. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> extracting That's great, yeah. Well, well, yeah. you, but you had market experience, just not necessarily with nonlinear um, yeah, exactly. products. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, last question before we go off to, off to our new segment. So, Alex, you know, you're working on another project right now. We haven't implemented it yet because you're still in the research process. Uh, you know, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit closer to what Vera was doing for uh, the CPI swap model. But you're working on a yield curve fair value model for for uh, for me. And you know, talk a little bit about what you're doing and the process that you're going through in order to try to develop and figure out what the best method is to uh, to to you know work on that model. Yeah, sure. Um, as you said, we have not published this yet, so this is a bit of a teaser uh, for something that we're working on right now. But basically what the model is, is it's a quote unquote fair value uh, of the shape of the yield curve. And I use quotes because, um, you know, we can use it for a variety of purposes. But the idea of the project was to quantify the shape of the yield curve and have these parameters that describe that shape of the yield curve over time. And then to relate those to macroeconomic fundamentals and basically show over time how the yield curve is shaped relative to what the fundamentals would um, describe it as. So that's your, your fair, fair value part. But also another, you know, uh, I think going to be a very interesting use case of this is to, you know, see those coefficients on the macroeconomic fundamentals and how those have moved over time. So, you know, what what in the economy has affected the shape of the yield curve? you know, back in the 80s versus now. I, I think that's just going to be completely fascinating. 
Um, <clears throat> so the model is sort of a two-stage approach. Um, as I alluded to, the first stage is to find a way to describe the shape of the yield curve. Um, fortunately, many people have worked on that uh, for many, many years. So that was actually easier than I anticipated um, to do. So we've basically boiled down the shape of the yield curve for the last uh, 50 or so years um, down to four parameters. And we have those on a monthly basis uh, going back in time. And then the second stage of the model is to um, this is more traditional data science, but it's also a little bit more complicated, um, is to relate those parameters over time to macroeconomic fundamentals. And one thing that we wanted to be uh, very cautious of is, is that we wanted to allow those parameters to move dynamically over time. So we're actually using something called a common filter, um, which is kind of an old school statistical model. Actually, it was developed to help uh, you know lunar landers land on the moon which is uh, pretty interesting in my opinion. Um, and so far the model's going really well. We should have something out on that in the very near future. Great, well, thank you very much. That was Vera Tian and Alex Montiel. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today on the FIC Focus podcast. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having us. Now we're gonna to turn to a new segment with Angela Monolatos moving on to Greater Pastures. I don't know about Greater Pastures. I think I was a pretty good uh, mentor for him. Um, but we, but because he's moved on, uh, we are bringing in a new segment here on the Macro Matters Edition called Interest Rate Intro with Will Hoffman. Will Hoffman is uh, our new associate in the US Interest Rate Strategy team here at Bloomberg Intelligence. Will, thank you very much for coming on FIC Focus. Thank you very much for having me, Ira. So in this segment, the idea was, as you are relatively new to, um, not to fixed income because you've worked in credit for, for a while now, um, but since the, you've just moved to the interest rate product area with, a, with me a couple of weeks ago, um, that not only will you learn something by, by uh, asking me questions about the, the U.S. rates markets, um, but also we can educate some of our listeners who might not uh, be as familiar with the rates market as they might be equities or credit or, or other markets around the world. Um, so what question do you have for me today, Will? So today I have a question on the repo or repurchase agreement markets. Um, and I guess I have a three-part question for you to make it tricky on our first go. Uh, first off, what is a repo or repurchase agreement? Second, how do they work? And finally, why are they so important to global financial markets? So uh, maybe I'll take those not quite in reverse order, but let me talk about a little bit about why they're important. So when an investor uh, 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 an investor purchases a bond from, say, a dealer, um, that dealer often doesn't actually own that bond that they sold them. So that dealer then has to be winds up being short that security. And the way that the uh, treasury market deals with that is um, they allow uh, the dealer to borrow a bond from a, uh, a securities lender, and then they, um, they they borrow it over typically overnight in what's called a repurchase agreement. So a uh, so, so the way that these work is a dealer would then take in a bond. Uh, they would. Um, uh, they would then give cash to the uh, to, to whoever they borrowed it from, um, and then they would then sell that bond on to um, on to the investor who purchased the bond from them. Um, now, typically, then the the that 
uh, that bond might stay short. They might stay short that bond for a long period of time and roll these uh, repos over. A variety of the repo market, or, or most of the repo market, I should say, is is overnight transactions. Um, it's one of the reasons why um, why the the uh, the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, the ARC, chose repo as the base for the new um, for, for the new benchmark called called SOFR, the Secured Overnight Financing Rate. Um, and the reason and and the the reason is is that because this is the basic uh, funding tool for most of the Treasury market. There's upwards of a trillion dollars of transactions that happen on a daily basis uh, in this market. It is one of the largest, most liquid markets because it is secured. Um, because your your worst case is if you think about the a repo and, and why it is so um, uh, they are so ubiquitous is you're you're receiving collateral as a treasury uh, or you're receiving cash so one way or the other you have an asset that is you know uh, quote unquote money good so assuming that there's not a problem with the debt ceiling or something that um that normally that the your your product is money good so let's imagine a situation where um you you do a repo and you actually lend someone um a hundred dollars and they lend you a hundred dollars of face value of treasury securities um and then at that point, um, your you, you, the person doesn't pay you back the hundred dollars. Well, your worst case now is that you own a treasury, um, and uh, and because you own that treasury, if your counterparty is a large financial institution, for example, um, you know more than likely uh, the 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 markets are in risk off mode. People are buying treasury securities, so the value of your collateral goes up. And then conversely, on the other way, if someone fails to give you that treasury back, there's actually a couple of different features to um, to, to what what occurs. One is if they fail to to give you the treasury back because they went bankrupt or something like that, and they don't have the security, well, you still have their hundred dollars of cash, right? So your worst case is, is that you're you're basically made whole. Um, but also, if they fail to deliver you a bond. Um, then you actually uh, th then you actually receive three percent from them. So there's actually a three percent per per annum because there's a what's called a fails charge. So um, if if someone fails to deliver you a bond, then you actually receive compensation for not having that bond on hand. So there are certain um, incentives now that that were created actually after the financial crisis uh, back in 2008 2009 in order to um, uh, in order to make penal for you not to deliver a bond uh, in when you do a repurchase agreement. So it's it's relatively complicated and, and I realize I probably didn't do the best job trying to describe it, but just know that it is a very liquid market. It's incredibly important and it's very liquid. Um, and because of that, the um, um, it, it is kind of the it is the the plumbing that makes the uh, that makes the financial world go round because of course treasuries are the benchmark for just about everything. So if you're a hedge fund and you are a credit hedge fund and you only want to buy a corporate bond, for example, on um, uh, you only want to you only want to take the spread risk. Well, you might buy a ten-year corporate bond, but then you'll sell a treasury against that. And the way you sell that treasury is by using the repo market. So it's uh, it is amazingly important. So, Will, did did that answer your question, or did it bring up another question that I might be able to uh, to well maybe confuse you more uh, uh, about? <laughs> I think that is enough learning for this episode.
<laughs> That's great. Well, thank you very much uh, on behalf of uh, Vera Tian and Alex Montiel and Will Hoffman. I've been Ira Jersey. If you have any ideas for questions or topics you'd like to uh, you'd like us to hit on or any guests that you'd like us to try and get on the show, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. Until next time, be well. 